We recognize, O oh Lord, um, we're first of all thankful that we are numbered among your people, that you indeed have opened our eyes and our ears to know the truth. We thank you for that inheritance that is ours that can never be shaken. You are protecting it, and none can take it. None can break through to steal, as Jesus said. So we give praise to you for your wonderful promises. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for where would we be? The whole new birth is because of the work of the Spirit. Our illumination of the Word of God is due to the Holy Spirit. Our comfort in troubling times is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we give praise to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For the blessed name of Jesus we ask, amen. Well, we're studying the gospel according to John, and we're on in John chapter 2. And this evening we're going to take a look at verses 13 through 25. Jesus' cleansing of the temple. John 2.13 And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he says, take these things away, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us to us seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now we come to an interesting event in the life of the Lord Jesus in his, an event that has stirred interesting controversy, I guess, in the church as to what was going on with Jesus here in the, the cleansing of the temple. Now we're told here it was, this is, occurs right after his first miraculous sign of changing the water into wine at the marriage feast of the Cana of Galilee. And it says, the Passover was near, 
So he goes up to Jerusalem. I don't know if you ever understood. Sometimes when we talk about geographically, when we say we're going to go up north, we're going up, not necessarily elevation, but when uh, it's on a map, it's north, and we say that's up. But when Jesus says going up, Jerusalem was higher elevation than that was in Galilee. So when it says he went up to Jerusalem, you're literally going up in elevation to go to Jerusalem. So he goes there, and we see that Jesus enters the temple. He makes a scourge of cords. He overturns the the tables of the money changers. He drives them out, drives them and the animals out of the temple. And so people have said, loving Jesus did this. Now, I'm sure when you read this, it's got to conjure up some image in your mind what was happening. And you think, uh, for him to do this, what, what was going on? Now, we got to understand, there was no sin involved in this, was there? You can't say there was any sin because the Son of Man has no sin, right? So what Jesus did here was an act of righteous anger, and we're going to see why he was angry, in driving out these people out of the temple. We, uh, <clears throat> what we see here, he drives them out. But we also know from Scripture, if you were, or were to read Mark chapter 11, you're going to see a cleansing of the temple there as well. Now here's the thing, if you read John 2, and then you read Mark 11, you're going to be scratching your head and saying, I, I don't know. What, is there just one cleansing? Is there two cleansings? The best understanding of this is that there were two cleansings. There was this cleansing, because this event in John 2 is the early part of Jesus' ministry. If you look at the Mark 11 account, you're going to see that Jesus enters Jerusalem Jerusalem in the triumphant entry where people are saying, Hosanna, son of David. And that's, that's an event that occurred at the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, some have conjectured, well, John doesn't necessarily want to arrange things sequentially. Historically, he may be more thematic. But the evidence really is that there were two cleansings of the temple. And we'll go on to that a little bit more uh, and maybe understand why there was necessary to be two cleansings of the temple. So what we see here, uh, what was going on here with with the God-man? Remember, Jesus is the God-man. And what he did here was a righteous anger. We're even commanded in Scripture that we can be angry and yet sin not. Of course, most of the time when we're angry, it's not a righteous anger, is it? It's, it's a sinful anger. And even if we're righteously angry over, for example, the murder of babies by abortion, we can be righteously, as we ought to, be angry over that. But then sometimes in that we can express that in a sinful manner. But that's not the case with the Lord Jesus. He was without sin. And so what he did was uh, 
totally permissible in the word of God. Obviously, what we're going to see if we, as other commentators mentioned, there were two cleansings. The, the ruling body of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, was allowing these things that Jesus is upset with to be going on in the temple. So to understand some of this, it may be helpful to understand the layout of the temple. There were three courts in the temple. You had an inner court where there was the court called the court of the priests. Then you had the court of women. And then you had the court of the Gentiles, which was by far uh, overshadowed the other two courts. The court of the Gentiles surrounded the other two courts. Now you might think, why was there a court of the women? Were, uh, were, were these, were they chauvinists? Is that why they had some issue with women? No, what you got to understand is this. If you look at the Levitical, uh, look at the Mosaic law, remember that women during their menstrual period and after childbirth were viewed as ceremonially unclean. And so, there would be no way, the reason they had a court that women could come into, but they couldn't go any further, lest one of those events had occurred in their life and they would be ceremonially unclean and the law forbid that. So that's why you would have a court of the women. Um, then you had, of course, the, the court of the priests, uh, which contained the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in the temple, of course. But what was this purpose for this court of the Gentiles, which consisted of that largest part of the temple? It was given the name because in that place, Jews and Gentiles could gather and the Gentiles could come and they would be, it would be a place for them to, to meditate and to pray. But the Gentiles could not go any further into the temple than the court of the Gentiles. In fact, the temple had a little wall about three feet tall. And if you went to that wall, there was a sign posted, no further if you're a Gentile upon pain of death. Now that had a way to uh, 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 affect your behavior, wouldn't it be? <laughs> Because they were a temple police, and if you were to go, they'd arrest you, and they could kill you. So they couldn't go that way because, remember, during that period of time, you had the Jewish people, if you were going to be um, in God's covenant, there were special privileges of being in God's covenant, and there was a separation between Jews and Gentiles. We know in the New Testament that barrier wall is going to be begin to come down. And God had always prophesied that there was going to be a ministry to the Gentile world, that the nations of the world would be reached. But at that point, this is what uh, the Gentiles, uh, the only place where they could come, but it was a place where they could come, meditate, and pray. 
Now, Matthew has a very brief uh, account of Jesus' cleansing. It's probably the most brief account of all the, of the gospel writers. And it says that Jesus went in, it says he entered into the court of the Gentiles. And the minute he, he enters it, he sees something, and it says, Matthew says, Jesus saw what was going on, and he says, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. Now, what Jesus was quoting is a passage out of Isaiah. Let's take a look briefly at the passage Jesus is quoting. That's Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. This is what Jesus was quoting. Even those I will bring, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now, one thing we see, uh, and then it goes on, says, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples, all the peoples. Now that would, of course, when he said place of worship for all the peoples, that's including the Gentiles. So Jesus enters the temple on this day and he goes to uh, through the court of the Gentiles and he comes to a scene, sorry to the eyes. Here's what he sees. He sees things, he hears things, and his nostrils pick up things. What he sees in the court of the Gentiles is basically a stockyard. Merchant, you have all these animals being brought in and just think about, you got all these animals in here and what the smell would be and of course the stench. Of course the animals are gonna relieve themselves, right? So you're going to have that stench going on. So Jesus walks into a place of a house of prayer and the court of the Gentiles designed to meditate upon the scriptures and he sees bustling business going on. And so it, it, was, it was like a stockyard and all these animals were there destined to be used for sacrifice but they were bringing them in into the court of the Gentiles, not outside the temple, but inside the temple. Jesus says in our text, if you turn back to John 2, 16, he says in verse 16, you have made my father's house a house of merchandise. Now there's no problem with merchandising, right? In its proper place, but not in the temple, not in the temple that's designed for prayer, and for the sacrifices for atonement for sin, that's not an appropriate price for it. So he says, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. 
So at this time of the year, it says that the Passover was near. At the Passover, many people from around the Roman world, Jews, would come at that seven-day period for the Passover, one of the most holy times in the Jewish uh, life. And they were there. And now when you came from out of town, here's several things. People could bring their own sacrifice to have the priest sacrifice it for them. You could bring your own sacrifice, okay? Well, several things that we need to address is, one, if you are from Asia Minor and you've traveled three or 400 miles, are you gonna bring your own sacrifice? Not likely. But here's what you could do. You could buy your sacrifice in among the merchants there selling the sacrifices. That's what you could do. You could also, like I said, you could, locals, they could bring in their sacrifice, which is permitted. However, here, here's the thing. You ran the risk of those governing the temple not to approve your sacrifice. Remember, your sacrifice had to be a, without blemish. And if, 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 if I were to bring in a sacrifice and those responsible looking at the sacrifice were to say, well, John, we, we don't approve your sacrifice. We're not gonna let you bring that in. So you ran the risk. So it was easier to buy an approved sacrifice from those who were selling the animals. Now, as you know, what apparently was uh, going on is, I think what we see is there was an arrangement made between the Sanhedrin and the merchants, which will explain why in Mark's account, that in that cleansing of the temple, the Sanhedrin was ready to kill Jesus for what he did. Why? Well, one thing, he interrupted business. (laughs) Now, there was likely a kickback. Edersheim talks about this in his, his book, his great work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And why, why would Jesus be upset with the money changers? Well, one of the things in the sacrifice, you had to use Jewish coins. You couldn't bring in a Roman coin. You had to bring in a Jewish coin, which meant you had to have the money changers then give you the equivalent of your money for Jewish coins. Well, what could they do? Well, there could be false weights and measures the Bible condemns. They could be engaged in that. And what these money changers would do, they would exchange foreign currency for Jewish currency so that you could purchase your sacrifice. Now, for example... Edersheim mentions this in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. 
For example, he said, those who sold pigeons, because some of the sacrifices you used two, two doves. And he says, it would, he, you, they would charge, he says at times, like $4 for this pair of doves that was actually worth a nickel. So they were making a kickback, right? They were taking advantage of these people. Well, we would say, what, price gouging? Is what was going on. There was no way to control the cheating in the exchange from foreign currency to Jewish currency. And remember, Jesus is the God-man. And we're going to see at the end of John 2 here, he knows exactly what's in the hearts of men. Remember why uh, Nathaniel who was called to be one of his disciples, was so impressed with Jesus. When Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, and behold, Jesus says, an Israelite indeed. And why would that stimulate Nathaniel to say, my Lord, he, he believed that he was the Messiah. Just because he said that, Jesus says, because I said this, you believe I'm the Messiah? Well, here's the thing. Nathaniel was for all practical purposes. He was alone. How did Jesus know he was sitting in a tree? And how did Jesus know what he was thinking and meditating on? Because Jesus is God. That's why. And so when Jesus comes into the temple, he knows that there was cheating going on. He knows that there was price gouging going on. And they were taking advantage of people. And he says, you have made my father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Notice he says, a den of thieves. He knew they were cheating the people. And that's why he said what he said. So Jesus showed a great displeasure for those who use religion for filthy lucre. Nothing has really changed over the years, has it? Really, in some regards, I mean, there are people, you know what, people in, quote, Christian ministry, there to make money, to take advantage of people. Send in your, your handprint, we'll pray for you, but send a gift of $50 when you do that. You know all about it. Again, nothing wrong with merchandising, but not in the temple. So what Jesus did, he made a scourge of, of rope he saw there, and he created a whip and he drove out the money changers. He turns over their tables, we're told, and there goes the coins all over the floor. And he drives them out of the temple. And uh, we, we're told in our text, look at what we are told. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. They remembered uh, what Jesus had said. Now, there's a prophecy. Turn over to Psalm 69, 9, and you'll see that. Psalm 69, 9.
For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. So when Jesus drove out the people out of the temple, later on we're told right here that his disciples remembered the prophecy and they realized Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. It's his house. And he's consumed with the zeal for his house to remain a house of prayer and not a place to uh, bring in animals. It was to be a place of quiet meditation, of prayer, not booming business, and more or less not cheating people on the side and being thieves about it, of course. Now, this is not the only time in the New Testament that we are told that the disciples remembered what Jesus told them after Jesus had ascended. Uh, you know, this is really this is really no different than what a passage that we have looked at several times, Matthew sixteen seventeen. Remember when Jesus asked the disciples, "Who do men say that I am?" And after several said, "John the Baptist, Elijah, or all this," and Peter said, you're the Christ, son of God. Remember, Jesus says, well, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. My father in heaven revealed that to you. If you and I, and it kind of keys in what what Jess has been preaching on in the morning, if we're going to understand understand scripture, we, we have to have the ministry of the Holy Spirit going on. Because without, if, if, without being a Christian, we have no understanding. That's where 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the, the, blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the gospel of the glory of Christ. But then he goes on and says, but we have had that revealed to us. So there, there's no way that you and I will ever understand biblical truth aside from the ministry of the Spirit revealing it to us. Now remember John, uh, later on we're going to see in John 15, 26, I mean, you could go there, let's, let's look at that, John 15, 26. We see Jesus saying to his disciples, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from my, the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you a helper, the Spirit. And then let's look at John 16, 13. He says, but when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he, he hears, he will speak and he will disclose he will disclose to you what is to come so again the holy spirit the ministry of the holy spirit is to reveal truth to believers and jesus promised it remember he says i'm going away but i'm not going to leave you as an orphan i'm not going to leave you alone i'm going to send you the helper meaning the holy spirit and I've said this on other occasions, you and I are in a better state 
right now than they were in the New Testament before the, before the day of Pentecost. Before the day of Pentecost. You and I are in a better state because at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out with power. See, that's what, you had to have the Holy Spirit before, but it was not poured out with power as it was at the day of Pentecost. Remember, Jesus said, I want you to remain, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for that spirit to come. And 120 disciples were gathered in Jerusalem when the spirit came down as a, as a clove of, as like as fire. And they began to speak in tongues and began to share the gospel and be able to speak the gospel in other dialects. And they understood. So, now you can imagine how this act of Jesus how it went over with the sellers <laughs> who had all their animals driven out and had their money table of all that just overturned and their money scattered all over the floor. You can imagine how they felt. And you can imagine how the chief priests who sanctioned that going, see, they had to sanction this. They, you just couldn't come in without the Sanhedrin approving this. So it's done by the permission of the Sanhedrin. And this is why, if you turn over to Mark's account in what many believe to be the second cleansing of Jesus, Mark 11, we read this. It says, um, when Jesus did what he did, drove them out with the whips, overturned the tables, uh, verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. Now, one reason why some would think there were two cleansings in the temple, and it wouldn't make sense. Jesus, as we said in John 2, is an account of his, the beginning of his ministry, which was in Galilee of the Gentiles. And as I said, this Mark's account is, is the triumphal entry. So here's what, prob- here's what happened. When Jesus drove out the money changers and drove out all the animals and ruined their business. After two years, what do you think that happened? They just went back to business as usual. Is what they did. Just going to show the contempt that they had for the temple being a house of prayer. So Jesus comes back after two years, sees the same thing going on, and has to cast them out again. And this time, they're saying, you know, we've had enough, and they sought to destroy him. So in this regard, in verse 18 of John 2, Jesus, so the Jews asked him, once he did what he did in the temple, the Jews said, they answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us 
seeing that you do these things. In other words, the Jewish authorities, the temple police, they want Jesus to explain his drastic actions. In other words, saying, who do you think you are to come in here and do this? We want to know on what authority you think you have a right to do this. And here's Jesus' reply to their question is there in verse 19, which is an interesting reply, because he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, there we see that they seem to, to understand that to be the destruction of the temple. He says, now look, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to tear it down, and you're going to raise this up in three days? In fact, Edersheim and others says, the temple during the days of Herod the Great did much to build the temple, and it, wasn't, it was still not totally complete until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It took a long time to, to build this temple. What authority, Jesus, do you have to do this? So we're told here that Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They think in literal terms of a physical temple when the scripture says, no, verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. And what we see here is that Jesus is speaking of his death and resurrection, right? You destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Well, his temple, his body was destroyed, was killed, but then it was raised up. So Jesus all along was referencing his Messiah ministry, his work of atonement. And he says, I am the Messiah. This is my house. I have come to my house and you have profaned my house. Now it's interesting later on, I've always noted this. Jesus cleanses the temple twice from this corrupt thing that was going on. But then we see in Matthew 23, when Jesus gives that, gives that scathing rebuke to the Pharisees and called them, you know, whitewashed tombs. And he says, you're just like all your father, the prophet, your fathers who killed the prophets between here and this part of the temple. And you're getting ready to kill the ultimate prophet. You're getting ready to kill the son of God. And Jesus says, and it says he weeps over Jerusalem. He said, I would have gathered you like a mother gathers her chicks, but you would not come. And then he says, well, let's turn to Matthew 23. And this is an interesting comment that Jesus makes. Matthew 23. Verse 37 to verse 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers 
her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he says in verse chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples, came up to the point and pointed out to the temple buildings. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, do you see, back up to verse 38. What does he say about the temple there? Can you see what, what difference is? What does he call the temple now? Your house. He doesn't call it my house. Your house. It was at the point that we're told in Matthew 23 that God's wrath was filled up to its fullest measure. And with the killing of the Son of God, they were filling up to the brim the wrath of God. And now the house of prayer, my house, filled with a zeal, it's no longer my house, it's your house. And when the Romans came in in 70 AD, they came in and tore down, killed all the priests, and they tore down uh, the temple and, well, basically all of Jerusalem. What people don't realize, when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem in 70 AD, and they finally entered the city, and they were consumed, the Romans, with anger because, remember, the, 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 um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, accompanied the Romans. And he was an eyewitness of the fall of Jerusalem. And he accounts in his Antiquity of the Jews, there was great starvation because the Romans laid siege to the city. And basically they would starve the people out. There was civil war going on in the city. There was starvation going on. People were dying at such a high rate that Titus, the Roman general, from a high advantage point, could look over the walls of Jerusalem. People were walking on dead bodies six feet tall. They were dying at such a rate they could not throw them over to the walls of Jerusalem into the, the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, which Jesus has used as a reference to hell. The suffering was so great, Josephus says that Titus raised his hands to the heavens. He says, this is not my doing. This is not my doing. In fact, Josephus says that Titus did not want the temple destroyed. But here's what, what really enraged the Romans. People were starving, so they came, bust into a house, and there was a woman there who seemed to be okay. She seemed to be healthy. She seemed to have food. They pressed her only to find out that she had killed her infant son and was eating him. When the word got out to the Romans, they said, when we get in there, 
we're going to destroy it. Titus told them, do not burn the temple down. Josephus says he could not basically control his army. And they came in with great ferocity. They killed all the priests there. They went out, they set the Roman emblem, which was the abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about, into the temple, sacrificed pigs in the temple as an as a insult to the Jews, and then they burned it to a the ground. They destroyed not only the temple, but every stone in Jerusalem was leveled. And then the Romans sowed salt on the site. Jerusalem ceased to exist. So Jesus says to them, it's no longer my house. I have forsaken you. God says, he said, I basically in the scripture, he says, I've divorced you. He says, and I'm going to bring my wrath against you. Why? Because you killed the son of God. Remember when, when Barabbas was offered up, well, when, when Pilate did not want to kill Jesus because he said there's nothing in him worthy of being killed. He's, oh, I got a way out. It's the time of the year that we can offer them uh, a free someone. And here's Barabbas who is a murderer. They'll choose, Bar- they'll choose Jesus. Of course, no, they didn't choose Jesus. They chose Barabbas. And remember, they said, when Pilate heard that, it says he washed his hands, and that was a sign of his look. I'm absolving myself of this. It's on your head. And you know what it says in Matthew 27? They said, we're willing to accept that upon our children. They pronounced their own curse that came 40 years later. That's what they did. And in 70 AD, Jesus came. It's no longer his, it's no longer my house. They have desecrated it and he will burn it. Remember, the Jews could not even believe when the Babylonians came in. Why would God turn over the temple to these pagans like the Babylonians? And why would he turn over this temple to these pagan Romans? Because they had proved themselves unfaithful. They had uh, were worthy of condemnation. So it's no longer my house prayer, it's your house. And they paid dear consequences for it. You know, when um, Christ's body, uh, if you look at verse 22 there in John 2, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, I, I think it's, it's, it's fitting that we, we take a look there in Luke 24 for a moment. Turn to Luke 24. This is the day of resurrection. And you got some of Jesus' disciples, not the 12, 
on the road of Emmaus, all discouraged that Jesus had been crucified. And here comes walking along with them, Jesus just raised from the dead, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize him. Look at verse uh, 25. And Jesus is speaking. He says, and he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Then we're told that um, verse 31, Jesus opened their eyes and all of a sudden they realized who they were walking with. And we're told later on here that um, in verse 44 and following, after Jesus, they realized they were with Jesus. Jesus said to them, verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now look at verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See, there's the key. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And that's why it says here in John 2, after his resurrection, the disciples remembered what Jesus said and said, oh, now we get it. Well, why did they get it? (laughs) Because now they have the Holy Spirit teaching them. Remember, Jesus said, I'm gonna send you the comforter and he's he's gonna guide you to all the truth. Now we understand. Now they understood all these prophetic references of the Old Testament actually did apply to Jesus, who was the Messiah. They finally were putting it all together. Now, Jesus made it clear that the temple that he was referencing was his body. And we got to realize that the Old Testament temple was a place where God dwelt with his people, right? It was the holiest place on the planet Earth in the Old Testament. And that the church and then the temple, his body is said, we, the church, are said to be the temple, of God. And Christ's body was a obviously a superior dwelling place. Remember John, we've already looked at John 1:14 where it said in John 1:14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us being tabernacled reference to the tabernacle of the Old Testament. He tabernacled with us, and we beheld his glory, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Christ was crucified and when he died, what happened to the temple? What happened in the temple? Does anyone remember the moment he gave up the ghost? What happened? What was? Now, what curtain was that? 
separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Remember, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. He just couldn't come in anytime he want. Only one time a year, he went in with sacrifice for the sins of the people. And it means it was a restricted area. So when Jesus died, the significance of the curtain being torn was what Hebrews 4.14. Take a look at Hebrews 4.14 for a moment. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Jesus' death, he made access to all of us at any time we could go into the very presence of the living God with all of our requests. Totally unique in the history of mankind, in the history of the Jews. What a privilege. So in this regard, so when Jesus, when they ask him, what authority do you have to to turn over these tables and drive these people out? Because I'm the Messiah, that's the authority. And as the Messiah, one day, When you kill me, I'm going to raise myself up by the power of the Holy Spirit. The real sign, he says, what sign do you use? The real sign is going to be my death and resurrection. That's the real sign. If you want to know about signs. And of course, verse 20 says, the Jews didn't understand um, any of this. But the disciples were told in John 2, it's so noteworthy to what it says here. In John 2, they beholding us, verse 22, his disciples remembered that he said this and believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Brethren, if there's anything I can leave you with is basically you and I, we don't need signs to believe. We have, we have the scriptures. We have the scriptures and we have the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the scriptures We don't need to see anything miraculous to believe who Jesus is. And then we realize, how do you and I come to know and appreciate who Jesus is? The ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's who's opened our eyes. And so they they believe 
the scriptures. Now, as we go through John, we're going to realize, and Jess has uh, dealt with this to a limited degree in, in his parable on the sower and the seed. Whenever it says people believed in Jesus, does it mean necessarily a saving faith? It doesn't. For one, it says here that verse 23, many believed in his name beholding the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, it says, did not entrust himself to them. You think, well, that's, that's odd. It just says they, they believed in him. Why didn't Jesus trust them and trust himself? Well, the answer is verse 25. Because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man. Well, verse 24 says, he didn't entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He knew their thoughts. He knew their heart. See, this is why Jesus could say to the Pharisees, you, just like John the Baptist did, you guys are serpents and you make men more fit to hell than yourselves. He says, you are whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside. You wear these long robes. You want to be seen of people that you pray, but I know who you really are. You're a brood of vipers, just like John said. You got corrupt hearts, and really, you have the stench of a rotting dead body. Even though you look good on the outside, you are filthy on the inside. And I will have nothing to do with you. So these men that believed in him because of the signs... We're going to see when we get to John 6 that many were following Jesus because he was the great miracle worker. And when we get to John 8, I think it will be helpful for you to understand when it says that many believed in him and Jesus says, well, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. And then those to whom Jesus, it says, believed in him, Jesus will call them children of the devil. <laughs> children of the devil, it says they believed in him. Just because it says they believed in him, it was not a saving belief. Now that's important distinction and will help you as you go through the scriptures. So Jesus knew all of this. He, uh, he cleansed the temple twice because they were back to their old corrupt ways. They never did learn, never did. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you that for his zeal for how the temple was supposed to be used and how corrupt men corrupted the use of the temple and made a house of prayer, a house of merchandise and of thievery. Lord, help us to trust you fully because your word is true.
We ask in Jesus' name, amen.